Good morning. Freedom is here, and his name is Jesus Christ. Good morning, and welcome to our summer series from the book of Galatians, where we are realizing the true freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ, freedom from sin and shame, and ultimately freedom from self and selfishness, so that we can actually come out of ourselves to the glory of God and love others in Christ's name. Somebody came to me this morning, and they gave me a hug, and they said, Happy belated birthday. And I thought for a quick second, my birthday is December the 18th. This is really belated, or it's very early. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yesterday was my 30th spiritual birthday. And uh, I know I barely look 30 years old. I get that. But when I was 21 years of age, I got down on my knees in a small little bedroom in a farmhouse in Maine as Billy Graham presented to me the soul-freeing message of the gospel of grace. And instead of seeking to kill myself, I embraced Christ and I found a new life in him. And I just want you to know, as I read these words from Galatians to you and as Paul lived them and taught them, I just want you to know I've lived them. And I am so grateful to God for the freedom, the liberation that is found in none other than Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles this morning as we continue our expositional journey through the book of Galatians. We are still in uh, this very personal section, this autobiographical section that the Apostle Paul has written at the entrance to this book, this letter. And here Paul gives his testimony, we saw that last week, but he goes and gives a story after story of his own personal experience of what he actually did and lived out. And so in this whole section, what the Apostle Paul is really hitting forward is this, my gospel is the gospel, the good news of grace. And we talk, first of all, about the fact that there is really only one good news. There is really only one true gospel that will redeem a sinner and save a soul. And if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago and listened to what we had to say, I want to encourage you to go to our website, gracewaldorf.org. Go down the left-hand side, you'll see the word messages. Click on that. You'll open up the section that we're doing now on Galatians. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about there is only one gospel. I want to encourage you to uh, listen to that through. And then last week, we talked about the fact that my gospel is the gospel of grace, and I received it from God, and it totally changed my life, Paul told us. And he showed us his own personal testimony. Today, Paul wants us to get this in our minds. My gospel is the gospel of grace, not only because it was given to me by revelation, there's only one, not only because I received it of God and it changed my life, but also I personally defended it in Jerusalem And it was affirmed by those who are somebodies. Take your Bibles with me this morning, and let's look together at Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to get underway. Here we are, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing. He said, After 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas this time taking Titus along with me. He said, I went up uh, of a revelation. Now, I think you can find this revelation that he's speaking of in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30 of Agabus, if you're interested. 
He goes, I went up to uh, Jerusalem by revelation, and I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel, the good news that I have been proclaiming. It's the active tense. Among the Gentiles, these are people who are not Jewish in their background. In order, I went up in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. Paul was not doubting that his message was true, but he was concerned that the Jerusalem apostles would be undermined by the pressure that was being applied to them to not hold fast to faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. So he was concerned for them. In verse uh, 3, we have these words, and it's really the resolution of it all. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek or a Gentile. Yet, and now he gives us some of the details of what happened. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might seek to bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. For you. For me. For us, even today. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were really makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. He's not being rude here. He's just stating the truth. Those, I say, who seemed influential really added nothing to me. They added nothing to his message, thank God. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, or the Jews, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9. And when James and Cephas, this is Peter, And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. You see, that's where that comes from, by the way. We welcome folks into membership. Hey, let's extend them the right hand of fellowship. That's where that comes from. And he goes on to say this, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. Only, this is all they asked of them, Remember the poor. And Paul said the very thing we were very eager to do. Reading this portion, let's pray together. Father, we want to just give you praise this morning. Because not only is the plan of salvation all of you, but also you have taken the time to preserve the truth of salvation for us to have today in the word of God. Just as much a work of God as the preservation of the Scriptures. We are so grateful today to own a copy, to have the Word in our hands. I pray today that you will speak from your Word into our hearts. And that maybe today we will hear your voice clearly. It may be a way we've just never really heard it before. Speak for your servants here. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray. And God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. You know, uh, somebody has said 
that if it weren't for the fact that you do expositional or book studies, no one would ever, ever choose to speak on this passage. It just is one of those passages when you read it through, it's like, oh, okay, that's cool, now what? There's just nothing terribly remarkable about this portion of Scripture. Uh, Somebody has said, you'll never hear it read at weddings. You know, this is not one of those portions that just naturally lends itself to weddings. I was at a, a Christian school, or I'm sorry, I was at a homeschool graduation yesterday. And Bible verses were flying all over the place. But I can guarantee you not one of those families quoted one verse out of this portion of Scripture. It just doesn't lend itself to that kind of a thing. Tell me, if you were to go into the house of somebody, and you were to sit down in their living room, And they would say, hey, would you like some iced tea or lemonade? And you said, sure. So they get up and they walk out, and you're just casually looking around their living room, and you happen to look up on the wall, and you saw this this, uh, framed verse. But even Titus was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. What would you think? You would think, that's odd. (laughs) What, what an odd, strange little verse. Uh, nobody uh, goes to the trouble of cross-stitching those words from this verse on things that you can hang on your wall. It just isn't done. It's not one of those things, you know? And yet, and yet, these few words found in this verse of Scripture actually has a very powerful truth contained in it. Paul was going to Jerusalem. He was going to see James, the half-brother of Christ. He was going to see Peter, the one who was given uh, so much responsibility and authority. He was going to see John, the one whom Jesus loved. He was going to see the big three. He was going down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, I guess is the way they say it in the Scriptures, because it's elevated. He was going up to Jerusalem to see them in order that the message of the gospel of grace, which he received personally from Jesus Christ, would not be corrupted. And we know, according to this verse, this is kind of the resolution of this summit that that was had by these men. And this is the uh, resolution that even Titus, who is a Greek or a Gentile, was not forced to be circumcised. And you say, good for him. I'm really happy for him. But in reality, this was the issue of that day. If we were to take the time and kind of strip away all of the cultural realities that are laden on on this part of Galatians, actually the book of Galatians, if we were to rip away all the cultural stuff, what what we would be left with here is what I would call the universal principle that is applicable everywhere. And so it would look a bit like this. Rather than having this on your wall, perhaps it would feel more comfortable to have something like this on your wall. Jesus plus nothing. Here, circumcision, keeping of the Mosaic law. Jesus plus nothing equals what? Jesus plus equals? You got it. This is the universal principle that Paul was going into Jerusalem to try and get those who were somebodies to basically affirm. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is the message of the gospel of grace. And this is the message that God had committed to Paul. 
And so he was going to make sure, above all, that it would persevere. In fact, he went on to say this, I did this so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, he was writing to the Galatians, but it's true to us today. Paul went in there, and he did it by the grace of God. So this is, how many would rather have this verse hanging on your wall than the other one? Yeah, I don't blame you. This one's a little more uh, friendly. Um, but I'm going to take a few minutes, and we're going to spend the next few minutes together just kind of unpacking the reality of this truth. And, and I think today, perhaps more so than other days when I've spoken, um, we're, we're going to discover that this message is really kind of more pertinent uh, for those who have come from a religious background. It's really more pertinent for those who would have grown up in the church. Now, again, I was 21 years old when I came to know Jesus Christ. My family never attended church. I had no concept of who Jesus Christ was. I I came from a totally unchurched background, and I was very well aware of my own depravity, and and Jesus rescued me. But, But for those who grow up in the church and those who have a religious background, my hope is that maybe this would really kind of hit home with you uh, a little more pertinently. Uh, so let's begin by considering, first of all, this idea called, what's his name again? Yeah, him. His name literally means Savior, Savior. And so Jesus is indeed the second person of the Trinity. He entered into humanity, and then he went on to live an absolutely perfect life. The very life that we were called to live, but failed to live. And so Christ lived an absolutely perfect life for us. And then he went and he went and he died the death ultimately on the cross that we deserve to die. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is yes. So Christ lived the life we were meant to live, then he died the death that we should have died. And what Jesus Christ did is he absolutely, completely, fully satisfied all the desires and all the requirements of his Father. The Bible uses a beautiful term called propitiation, propitiation. He literally assuaged and satisfied all of the requirements and all of the desires of the Father. Jesus Christ took care of everything. That's who he is. That's what he did. Let me just give you a few scriptures just to show you how wonderfully the Father was pleased with his Son. It says um, that all of the expectations are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. At his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, we hear these words. Behold, a voice from heaven said this, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Interesting thing at the baptism of Jesus, there you see the Trinity all at one. Jesus, down in the water, as John the Baptist is baptizing him, you hear the voice of the Father out of heaven, and you see the Spirit of God descending on him as like a dove. So there you see the Trinity all in one. But his words were, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 12, we have a quote from Isaiah the prophet applied to Jesus that says this, My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved one, in whom my soul is well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, 
these words are said. Behold, a voice came out of the cloud saying this, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In effect, Peter, shut up and just listen. Uh, He was always sticking his foot in his mouth, and at that moment, that was one of those times just to be quiet and listen. But notice what it says. The Father speaking of his Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father was well pleased with the Son. And when the beloved one of the Father went to the cross, went to the cross, when Jesus Christ went to the cross... He declared before the Father, it is finished. It is absolutely complete. It is done. And then he died. Everything necessary for a soul to be made right with God was fully accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. And then God the Father gave his eternal declaration of satisfaction with his Son when he said, Amen, by raising him from the dead. So the father was, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved son. Jesus said, Father, I finished everything you've given me to do. It's done. And the father said, well done. And he raised his son from the dead. And then the father placed all authority in Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28 says this. Jesus, the risen Christ, to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee said this. All authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth. In fact, not only all authority, but even judgment. All the judgment of humanity is dedicated to the Son. In John chapter 5, Jesus said this, He has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So completely satisfied was the Son, so completely satisfying was the Son to the Father that the Apostle Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. All of God's promises, all of God's promises, all throughout the Word of God, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. With a resounding yes, the Scriptures say. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for His glory. And this is one of those promises And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What I want you to see is how fully satisfied the Father is in the Son and his sacrifice. Completely, utterly satisfied. So, here we go. So extending the offer of eternal life to us and extending his son and his life, death, and resurrection to us, God extends Jesus to us and what is to be our response? Let me give you a hint. Jesus plus, that's it. That's our response. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. The response to what God has done through his son is nothing. We just trust it. We believe it. 
We embrace it. We say thank you. That is the response that brings eternal life. Jesus plus, Jesus plus equals everything. This is the truth of the scriptures. You know, Titus, I can see him now. He's a Gentile, and, and he's in this, this ear, earshot of Paul as he's preaching away. And Paul is saying, you need to embrace this one called Jesus with your life. And if you will do that, he will forgive you of your sins, and he will give you eternal life, and you will spend forever with him. And I can imagine Titus, I'm a Gentile. I'm so unworthy. I, I don't keep the law. I'm a pagan. I believe you. And he got eternal life. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus simple faith and trust. Jesus plus simply wrapping our arms around him and saying thank you. There is nothing we can do but say thank you to the sacrifice of Christ when God makes that clear to our hearts and to our lives. That is all we can say thank you Because Jesus did it all. Everything that was necessary to satisfy the Father and to glorify Him has been fully accomplished in the Son. And so the response is, Jesus plus nothing. Which brings us to the contention that the Apostle Paul was having here in in Galatians chapter 2. His message was the gospel of grace. And if God the Father was completely satisfied in his Son and gave his Son all power uh, and authority and ultimately by raising him from the dead, then the Apostle Paul's contention in Galatians chapter 2 is simply this. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Judaizers? Who do you think you are to say that you're now going to add law-keeping and circumcision to the perfect work that God has done in his Son alone? Who are you, Judaizers? Expanding that to our day-to-day. Who do you think you are? Good, moral, upstanding, religious person with your lists of do's and don'ts that you do and you don't do? Who do you think you are, whoever you are, by adding whatever it is to what Jesus Christ has already fully accomplished on the cross? This is Paul's contention. Who do you think you are to say that the cross was not enough? Who do you think you are? Now, we would probably never say that in so many words. Yeah, I don't think Jesus really did it. I don't think we would say that. However, by our actions, by our addendums, by our adjustments, by our attitude, by our, by our, by our, add whatever you wish to that list. You see, if we seek to do anything, anything other than simply trust what Jesus Christ has already done, what we do is we impugn the work of Christ, and we offend God the Father. Let not that man think he will have anything from God. Jesus plus simple faith, simple trust, a simple embrace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
We are not pleasing God in gaining any kind of brownie points or righteousnesses by adding our penance, by adding our good works, by adding our church attendance, or by adding, and you fill in the blank, what we are ultimately doing is we are offending God and overshadowing the finished work of the cross. The Bible says that all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah said that. Uh, In context, he was literally talking about menstrual cloths. Or if we want to make it a little more homey to today, it's a bit like a little kid taking off his poopy diaper. Ooh, 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 mommy, daddy, what do you think? Ow, that stinks. That's what Isaiah meant. That's what, it's a, that's what it's like in the nose of God. When we come and we say, God, what do you think? God, what do you think? God, what do you think? He's saying, my son was enough. What are you doing? Him and him alone is eternal life. Him and him alone is that which redeems the soul. Him and him alone is that which ultimately transforms a life. It is not what you do. It's what he did that ultimately satisfied God and will ultimately redeem and transform a life. You know, um, this whole idea of self-righteousness, in many ways, self-righteousness is as much of an obstacle to salvation and eternal life as overt willful sinfulness is. In fact, I dare say that religion and morality is actually a bigger obstacle to true salvation than open rebellion is. And I think I'm standing on pretty firm territory when Jesus Christ said the same thing. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. He said this, and these are familiar verses to you. He said, the Pharisees and their scribes were grumbling at Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them these words. To those who are well, they have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. You've heard those words before, I'm sure. But let me actually fill in the detail that I think he was saying here, what I think the people would have heard. What Jesus said is this, those who think they are well have no need of a physician, but those who know they are sick do. I have not come to call those who believe they are righteous but those who know they are sinners to repentance. What Jesus is saying is this. I have largely uh, avoided the religious community because it's almost impossible to lead them into a relationship with me because they're too good in their own eyes. So I'm going after people who are sinners, people who know they're at odds with God, people who know by their life and their lifestyle the things that they say, they're drunkards, they're prostitutes, they're greedy, embezzling tax collectors. I'm going to them. Because they know they're sick. And they know they're sinners. And so Jesus makes this very powerful statement to the religious establishment of his day. You guys don't get it. What do you mean we don't get it? We've got the Old Testament memorized. We keep the law of God. We're doing all these good things for God. We're the temple keepers. We're the the head of the, the, the Jewish rite here in Jerusalem. What do you mean we don't get it? Sorry. You're too good for God to save you. That's the connotation. 
Jesus went on to make it a little clearer, I think, in Luke chapter 15. When it says in these opening words of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, in, it's the same statement, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing close to, to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling, saying, Wait a minute, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Jesus went on to give three stories, parables, in Luke chapter 15. There is the parable of the lost sheep. There is the parable of the lost coin. And then we have a parable that we have often referred to as the prodigal son. You're familiar with that story, right? Actually, that's probably not the best name for that parable. You see, we have a lost sheep, we have lost coin, It's actually better probably put forward as the lost sons. The lost sons. You see, he had two sons. And in the story, both of them are lost. There is the one who left home. He's the prodigal. He was obviously and visibly lost to the father. But there was the one who lived at home. And he was lost, but it was less obvious. You see, it is clear by the time you get to the end of the story exactly what the older son was like. I want you to hear these words from this story. Uh, Luke chapter 15, the final words. It says this, And now the older son was out in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he said, What are these things? What's going on? And they said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he received them back, because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28 says this, and the older brother was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out and he entreated him. But the answer, he answered his father with these words: Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disappointed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. You see, his attitude betrays his relationship. This son who was at home doing all the right things, doing everything that was supposedly dad wanted, keeping all the rules and checking all the boxes, unlike his brother who ran off and did anything he wanted, he was livid, he was mad, he was upset. And so the point of this story is Jesus was speaking to a group of people who were indeed sinners, but he was also speaking to the Pharisees. And he was basically saying this. You cannot separate the religious sinners from the overt sinners because both need to repent and embrace Jesus Christ with their lives. This was his point that he was hitting home to them. Now, I just want to say this. The religious lost, those who grow up with good deeds, good works, and nice morality but don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, it is such a subtle thing. It is such, it is such a difficult thing to really get, understand. It would sound something like this. Hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, of course I am. I was baptized when I was 12. Okay. Do you read your Bible? I got like 10 of them. Okay, and I got a new app, too, so that's cool. 
Do you go to church? Yeah, I go to church. I go to Third Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic, Methodist, Episcopalian, Brethren, Nazarene, Presbyterian, Lutheran church. I got all my bases covered. You know, I'll go to church. Sure, I like church. Church is a cool place. Do you go to church? I do. Okay, now tell me about your relationship with Jesus. I just did. Did you get that? There is a big difference between merely doing religious things and having an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Someone has said this, there is nothing that separates us from God more than our damnable good works. Think about that. Think about that. It is too easy to grow up in an environment and merely accept the rituals and the forms and the Bible and all these truths and everything, and yet believe that's what it means to have a relationship. It is too easy to do those things. Jesus plus equals. That's it. That's it. It's not how good I can be. It's not what I can do. It's not what I have done. It's not the things that I want to do. It's Jesus. Or it's not. Or it's not. Let me give you one last example uh, of this whole concept, and I think it's here. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we have a perfect example of what I would call the irreligious lost and the religious lost. Think about it. At the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ hung between what? Two thieves. So here's Jesus, and here are two thieves, one on his right, one on his left, and they are next to Jesus. These are the bad guys, okay? Everybody knows they're bad guys because they broke Roman law so badly that they're now being crucified for what they did. But not only did they break Roman law, obviously their, their, their deeds were so bad that they would have broken the law of God and thus have offended the holy, righteous God. None of them would say, God and me are good. They wouldn't say that because they know, they know they're lost. They know they're not right with God. So here we have the irreligious lost. And in a very real way, their great crime is selfishness. They wanted what they wanted when they got it, and so they took it. And so licentiousness, hedonism... They lived in open rebellion against God, and the scriptures clearly declare them as condemned as sinners. And what they needed to do, what they needed to do was to repent of their evil works. Just let go of whatever they've tried to find significance and meaning and purpose and all that in. Let go of all those things and just put their arms around Christ. Jesus, please. And we actually have the story of one of them doing that. I think you recall it. It's actually in, in Luke chapter 23, where it says this, in one of the criminals who was hanging, uh, nailed by, at him, railed at him, saying, you are not, you are not the Christ. Oh, I'm sorry, are you not the Christ? There we go. Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. He's acknowledging his sinfulness, his moral uh, lostness. But this man's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He couldn't get baptized. He couldn't put his hand in the hand of the preacher and pray a prayer. He couldn't do anything but simply trust Christ. And Jesus said this, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus plus equals We see that in the thief on the cross. These are the irreligious lost. They are so obviously in sin. They are so obviously in a place of condemnation. But the religious lost are not so obvious. Because not only at the cross do we find two thieves hung on one side, uh, each side of Christ, but we also find a group of religious leaders standing at the foot of the cross. These are the good guys. Seriously. I mean, if we were to take them today and move them forward into our circles, we would call them good, theological, fundamentalist, conservative people. They were Bible believers, Bible thumpers. They were doers of the word, not hearers only. These were the good guys. In everybody's eyes, that's who they appeared to be. But they were guilty of not just breaking the law of God, but actually believing that they could keep the law of God. And thus they were offending a holy and righteous God. Their great crime was pride and self-righteousness, a form of arrogance, legalism, moralism. And they lived in an unconscious rebellion against God. The Bible condemns them as sinners too. The irreligious are obvious. The religious, less so. As the irreligious must repent of their evil works, the religious have to repent of their good works. We have a perfect example of that in the Scriptures. Some guy by the name of Paul... He said this in Philippians 3. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I am amazing. You can put super P right there. Super Pharisee. He was amazing. Utterly amazing. But he went on to say this. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. It's like you can't know him unless you get rid of that other stuff, is what he's saying. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now hear these words. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or doing good, my list of right and wrong. But I want that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul, on the road to Damascus, repented of his good works when he met Christ. I'm nothing. Jesus is everything. Jesus plus equals you're getting it. Paul's problem in his day was not the irreligious The problem of Paul's day was the religious. And he had to continually combat them to try and keep the message of the gospel of grace clear and and effective. 
I'm sorry I can't see through the lights. I want to see what time it is. I know it's getting late, isn't it? I just want to leave you with a thought here, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity. Some of the most stark words in the entire Bible are found in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus makes these claims in in, uh, verse 21 and on. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's an uh, an ascription of, of sovereignty. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, remember all judgment has been committed to the Son. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we do all these good things for you, Jesus? Didn't we do all these marvelous things for you, Jesus? Jesus, we proclaimed. Jesus, we worked miracles. Jesus, look what we did. And then I will say to them, I don't know you. I never had a relationship with you. Gnosko, intimate experience. I simply do not know you. How is that possible? I'm going to give you a little video clip to watch. This is a pastor by the name of Tim Keller. He was doing a conference in Pennsylvania. I'd like you to hear what he has to say about some very overt religious people. Sure, over here. Um, We have religious people come to the University of Pennsylvania all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, very often they're over in front of the library, uh, literally standing on soapboxes. Well, actually, they're kind of plastic cans, but anyway. Um, And they tell us that abortion is murder Mm -hmm. and that we're all going to hell because we're fornicating. And they get very perturbed when I tell them, but that's not preaching the gospel. Uh, what you said tonight is very significant, but I think that you can include, uh, in, as we nearly close, what is the gospel? Tell us the gospel. Would you like me to talk to these people? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll use, I will tell you what I think the gospel is by the branch. Uh, there's a, remember that branch illustration? If Jesus Christ's death and resurrection in my place, if I, I believe that, uh, then I don't, I don't have to be a good person. I don't have to have great faith. I don't have to have this surrendered heart. I don't have to have this perfect life. I just need to grab that branch and I'm saved. And uh, on the other hand, uh, a person who has got no doubts and I know I'm living a good life and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not fornicating and I'm not having abortions and I'm, not, uh, uh, and I'm obeying the Ten Commandments, and you're filled with pride, and you therefore are not merciful to those who doubt. You look at people who doubt and say, why can't you be like me? This is a person who has fallen off the cliff. They're filled with belief about the Bible and doctrine, but they actually haven't relied on Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're being their own Savior. So Christianity Christianity says religion, traditional religion, which produces Pharisees, is I give God a good record, and then... In response to that, he blesses me. But Christianity is, God gives me a perfect record in Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. I'm a sinner, and I only get it when I admit that I'm a moral failure. And then he gives me this acceptance, and now I live for him out of gratitude, which means of a lack of that. If I'm a sinner saved by grace, there has to be a, a lack of this superiority and this self-righteousness that you see in the people in the soapboxes. Uh, a man across my hallway, where I've lived for 19 years, my neighbor is a Hindu. And I look at him, and as far as I can tell, he's, he, he, 
probably is a more moral man than me. He's, he may be a better man than me, you, you, you even thought of broadly. He's, he's certainly a better father than me. And you say, well, how can you say, don't you believe you're saved? You're a Christian, he's a Hindu. The answer is I'm not saved by being a good father or by being a good man. I'm saved by the mercy of what Jesus Christ, of what he's done. And therefore, I can't feel superior to him. There's a tendency, because my heart is sinful and self-centered, there's a tendency to use my Christianity to feel like, why don't you people have the truth? But the gospel takes me out of it. But people, I think people like the people you're talking about, don't understand that gospel. The self-righteousness, the Phariseeism, is something that the gospel should expunge. And so if you're out here thinking about Christianity and you're thinking about people like that, keep in mind that Christianity has, uh, that's not Christianity. And it also has self-corrective resources within it. That's why you have the Old Testament prophets railing against religion. You have Jesus railing against the Pharisees to say, you don't understand grace. If there is arrogance in us, then we don't understand depravity. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that does good. No, not one. If we're arrogant and if we think we know it all and we're going to tell them how they should live and what they should do and because we know that we're good people and we've done these good things and all of this is about us, we don't get grace. Because grace, when you get it, says there was nothing in you that deserved anything but judgment. But I, God, looked upon you with favor. I gave you the death and, and resurrection of my son, and I now take you to be mine. Where can pride live in that? Where can arrogance reside in that? When we embrace Christ, the goal would be that we would begin to live and love like Jesus, which means that indeed our life should take on a connotation of goodness, of, of the beauty of the character of Jesus. But in no way should that ever leave us at a point where we look down our noses at other people, because the more you become like Jesus, the lower you become and the more loving you're willing to give of yourself to others. Does that make sense? This is Jesus, and this is the gospel of grace. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I claim. There's nothing I can do or say other than thank you, Jesus. Letting go of my good works, letting go of my sin, and simply embracing him. Jesus plus equals everything. In fact, we haven't even begun to talk about the everything. I want to let you know that online, if you go to the messages portion uh, of our website, that I have put a document on there called The Believer's Position in Jesus Christ. He gave us everything, the riches of his grace. 
We were part of God's eternal plan. We were foreknown, elect, predestined, chosen, and called. We have been reconciled, redeemed, brought near, and given access. We've been born again, sons of God, new creation, adopted, and heirs, justified, uh, declared righteous, sanctified, made perfect, accepted, forgiven, and and made complete. We've been crucified with Christ. We have died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And today we sit at the right hand of God in Christ. We, we are his gift, we are his bride, we are his inheritance, his possession. We have been born of the Spirit, baptized of the Spirit, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. We are the children of his love, the children of his grace, the children of his power, the children of his faithfulness, the children of his peace, the children of his encouragement, the children of his intercession. We are also heavenly citizens, part of God's household, and we are guaranteed a heavenly inheritance. Jesus plus equals it's all in him all of it's found in him alone him alone this again is online i love this quote i'm going to finish with it by jonathan edwards grace grace is but glory begun and glory is but grace perfected may that day come soon let me pray for us Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I pray today that the reality of Jesus plus nothing equals everything would resonate in our hearts and minds as we leave here today, that you would cause it to bump around in our hearts and our minds all week long, and that we might hold ourselves against it and think, where am I? Is it faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone? I pray that we will find ourselves indeed to be in Christ. There's no finer place to be found. We give you praise, Father, for your wonderful plan and for your 